with you, loved ones. Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. I am continuing my series in the book. And we'll be looking at chapter 1 this evening, starting in verse 6, and we'll be going all the way to verse 10. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. And the title of my sermon this evening, loved ones, is No Other Gospel. No Other Gospel. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, if you please may stand with me for the public reading of Scripture, just like they did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, out of reverence for the Word of God. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible as well. Awesome. This is what God's Word has to tell us this evening, church, in Galatians 1, starting in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now see again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel, contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people, or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is what our Lord tells us this evening, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we again thank you just for the privilege of just being able to approach your word again. Um, And I just thank you, Lord, for the privilege of preaching your word again this day, Lord. I just pray that, Lord, help us just to not only hear your word, Father, but to be doers of it, Lord. Um, Remove me as much as possible, Father. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. That is just your word going to your people. And I just pray the same for my brothers and sisters here in person or anyone online listening to this, Lord. Fill them with the Spirit, Lord, so that, God, they will just be able to hear your words, Father, understand it rightly, and apply it to their lives, Lord, so that, God, they can ultimately ultimately be more like Jesus and, God, just make disciples of all the nations, Father. And so, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come and study your word together, and we just pray that your word will be proclaimed thus forth from this pulpit faithfully as unto you, and we just lift up all these things as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see the loved ones. So the ancient theologian and philosopher, Augustine of Hippo, he once said these words. If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And so we hear something like this, right? And these words are relevant in our culture today, loved ones. But you might might be asking yourself, well, why? Well, because people are turning away from the gospel of Christ to, really, the gospel of self. It could be, it's, whether it's over issues like identity politics, maybe loose sexual ethics, or even social justice as a means to an end itself, they all fall short of delivering what they promise. Furthermore, the gospel of self may express the subjective desires of our human heart, Maybe even a deconstructed faith might even align with the story people want to tell about themselves. However, this quest for self-discovery in our culture, it only ends more brokenness. It does not solve humanity's greatest problem due to sin, and it's the problem of lostness. Instead, only the gospel of Christ can save lost sinners like you and me. Because it's according to the Bible, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the essential gospel message. And so to believe the parts of the gospel you like at the expense of the parts you don't like is not to believe in the gospel of Christ. Instead, as we're going to see in our text, loved ones, that's really no gospel at all. It's a false hope. And believing in a false hope only adds to humanity's greatest problem, and that is, again, lostness. So likewise, keeping that in mind, we see the Apostle Paul then. He writes a letter to the churches in Galatia around AD 49, And these are house churches in modern-day southern Turkey. And not only that, but these were also Gentile churches, which means they were non-Jewish. Why do I mention that? Well, these churches in Paul's day, they were also being deceived by a false gospel. And the proponents of this different gospel, as we look at the letter of Galatians, are really Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. But what was their message? What false gospel were they proclaiming? Well, put it quite simply, it's that Gentile Christians need to be Jewish to be saved. And this stems from the fact that Jews in the first century, Christians, they believed that a person is saved, of course, by grace through faith alone in Jesus, right? They didn't deny that. 
because that's what God promises in his word. However, they also believed that keeping God's law distinguished them as God's covenant people. So the Jewish Christians thought, all right, if the Gentiles want to be followers of Jesus the Messiah, they have to be Jews grafted into God's family too, right? However, as Paul, um, studied, as Paul shows us in his letter, a person, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you're not saved based on your ethnicity alone. You are not saved if you're ethnically Jewish. Instead, people are saved when they believe in Jesus Christ alone. As Paul says in Romans 1.17, it's the righteous who will live by faith. The person who believes in Jesus, we have life in him. So Paul's problem then is not necessarily that these Jewish Christians kept the law, because indeed, God's law is good, for it reflects his perfect nature. However, Paul's negative view of the law in Galatians stems from the idea that these Jewish Christians, they were saying that the cross of Christ is not enough. They were saying it was insufficient. In other words, it's not enough for a person to be saved by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And to really add to this dilemma, these Jewish Christians were also downgrading Paul's authority as God's apostle. So with all these things in mind, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians to not only affirm his apostolic authority from God, but to defend that a person is saved by believing in Jesus Christ alone. And therefore, we arrive now at really the purpose of why Paul writes his letter in Galatians 1, 6-10. But before I can begin expounding on this passage, here's the main point. Not only is it the main point of my sermon, but really the main point of the text this evening. And it's this, loved ones. Believing a false gospel has eternal consequences. Believing a false gospel has eternal consequences. But why? Why is that the case? Well, like I said, Galatians 1, 6 to 10, we're going to see Paul give us three reasons why believing a false gospel has eternal consequences. Reason number one, we're going to see the deception of a false gospel. The deception. Reason number two, we're going to see the damnation of a false gospel. That damnation. And lastly, the defection of a false gospel. The defection or rebellion against a false gospel. And so with all that in mind, loved ones, let's begin by looking at Paul's first reason why believing a false gospel has eternal consequences. And again, it's this, the deception of a false gospel. So look at your Bibles, loved ones, in Galatians 1.6. Paul begins our passage this evening by saying, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And so we see here then that Paul is beginning really the, the main thrust of his letter, the body, some people would put it. And I mention that because in first century letters, they always typically had three elements of any letter. First, you got a greeting, then the body of the letter, and really a conclusion. Furthermore, there was always this section of thanksgiving or giving thanks to the people receiving the letter. This would occur after the greeting, but also before the body of the letter. And again, I mention that because Paul does this all the times in his letters to express to his churches how thankful he is for them for whatever he wanted to thank them for. However, when it comes to the letter of Galatians, this is the only exception. In other words, there's no Thanksgiving section within the book of Galatians. But now that begs the question, why? Well, look again at verse 6, loved ones. Look how Paul begins it. He says he is amazed. If you have an ESV, it might say that he's astonished, right? And so he's using very powerful um, language here. And so to understand Paul's emotion or why he feels this way, we got to look back at the text. Look at what he says at the very next part in verse 6. He says that, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So Paul's amazed for two reasons. We see one, that the Galatians were turning away from the gospel of Christ, and secondly, to a different gospel. And so keeping that in mind then, Paul's amazement is not something good the Galatians did. It's like, oh, bravo, Galatians, good for you. No. Instead, he's really conveying how upset he is with them. He is irritated that they are so quickly turning away from the one true gospel to a completely different one. In other words, Paul's triggered here. He is upset, and rightfully so, because Paul's disappointment with the Galatians is regarding how fast they have turned away from the gospel of truth. 
And this phrase here in verse 6, so quickly turning away, just indicates how easy it was for them to be, to be deceived by the Jewish Christian's false gospel. And also another thing to keep in mind, this word for turning away, this verb, it's expressing that these Galatian Christians, they were still in the process of being deceived. In other words, the Galatians were continually turning away from the gospel of Christ. So keeping that in mind, let's keep looking at the text. Verse 6 says this, Paul says, from him who called you by the grace of Christ. And so this is what the Galatian Christians are turning away from. And so keeping, so to understand this, the Galatian believers, they're not only turning away from the gospel, but Paul is reminding them, Galatians, you were called by God, the Father, by the grace of Christ. What does that mean, though? Well, what we can first learn is that man, when it comes to salvation, is not, is not the initiator. Instead, it's God. It's God who first reaches out to us to save us. Maybe to give a brief analogy, where well, we were all dead in sin, right? Like a dead man floating in the sea. A dead man can't save themselves, right? They're dead. Unless, unless God graciously brings that person out of the water and revives us from spiritual death to eternal life in Christ, right? And so it's a work of God alone here. But even if we could save ourselves, right, even if we were floating in the sea and we saw the life preserver of Christ, we wouldn't want nothing to do with it. Why? Because our evil desires, we love sin more than our good creator God. And so keeping that in mind, then Paul would write later in, a, in his letter to the Ephesians, notice what he writes in chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, about this idea of calling by God. He says, For he, that is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, right? And so we see here then that God chooses his people, he chooses to save his people in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Why? To be perfect like him, to be like his son, Jesus. And we hear this, right? Like, John, that's impossible with man. And that's the point. Because it's only possible with God. And he did so by adopting adopting us into his family according to his goodwill for his glory alone. And so this calling then, going back to Galatians 1.6 now, all this that God does, it's according to the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. But that, that now begs another question. What does grace mean really? Well, when we think of grace, think of the idea of a gift. Now let me ask you a question. Do we work for a gift? Can we earn a gift, right? No, because that defeats the whole purpose of what a gift is, right? Because gifts are freely given according to the good pleasure of whoever the gift giver is, right? And so when it comes to God's grace, then, it is God's gift of giving us what we do not deserve. And what is that gift? Eternal life with his eternally begotten son, Jesus Christ. That's the good gift. Because we're sinners like you and me. We don't deserve anything but eternal damnation for our cosmic treason against the creator God. God shows them, he shows us mercy by calling us by the grace of Christ. God shows us grace by giving us what we don't deserve, everlasting life in Jesus, by withholding what we deserve, eternal damnation in hell. That's the mercy of God. And so Paul here then, he's explaining all this. He's reminding these to the Galatians and he's truly marveling at the Galatians. Galatians, how can he be turning so fast from this gospel of good news to a false one? But that, that, but that begs another question, right? What does he mean by gospel? What does he mean by this word gospel? Well, look at the end of verse 6. Paul uses an interesting phrase to a different gospel, right? And so to kind of understand what Paul's really saying here, let's look at the word gospel for a minute. For many of us, we know gospel to mean good news, right? But how Paul is using it here, it's a verb, really to proclaim the good news. That's what it's meaning here. Not just good news, but to proclaim good news. And to be a little more specific, this announcement of good news is really alluding to an act of deliverance, right? And so it's not just proclaiming good news, but proclaiming good news that we're going to be saved from something. And I think a very powerful example we see in one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament, we see this in Isaiah 61.1. This is what Isaiah um, prophesies about the Messiah's work here in this passage. He says here that the Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, it's that same word there, to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. And the interesting thing about this passage is that when you look at a passage like in Luke 4, when Jesus is reading this passage in the synagogue, he says that this prophecy of Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in me, in him. In other words, then, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is the one who brought the gospel to the poor. And he does this by providing for the greatest spiritual need of all those who are, in a sense, poor, brokenhearted, slaves to all sorts of desires, and every person in existence, because our greatest spiritual need, loved ones, believer and unbeliever, is to be born again, to know our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't want to downplay that physical needs are important, because they are, right? We should care for the poor. We should reach our hand out to the homeless for, the, for those who are orphans and the widows. But the point is, is that although those are important, and we, and we have the responsibility of taking care of those loved ones, physical needs, those are only temporary bandages in comparison to the heart transplant necessary to save someone from their sin. We have physical needs, but the greatest need for all people is spiritually to know Jesus. And this is done when God so loved the world, right? This fallen creation, when he sent his eternally begotten son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him, right, will not perish in hell for their sins, but have everlasting life. That's good news, loved ones. That's the gospel. And so for the Galatians then to turn to a different gospel from this gospel of Christ, it's really to a turn to a gospel that God doesn't save. Instead, it's another proclamation of news where Christ's death on a cross is not enough. And that's why Paul is, again, so amazed. He's so astonished. He's so irritated. And I think just to help further illustrate this point, how dramatic this switch is, I just want to bring up this example of the Roman Catholic Church today. Although there's various different differences within Roman Catholics and Protestants, such as us, evangelicals, if you can dumb it down to at least one, if you have to share it with one Roman Catholic, there's one difference that distinguishes Roman Catholics and Protestantism. And it's this doctrine or the teaching of what some people call justification by faith alone. Where the Roman Catholic Church believes a person is saved by believing in Jesus, they don't deny that, but... They think, you got to add some good works, right? You're saved by Jesus, but you got to do some good works to be saved, right? In contrast, as Protestants, as Christians, you and me, brothers and sisters, we believe that a person is only saved, right, by their faith in Jesus Christ alone, which then are followed by good works. The German reformer Martin Luther once said these words about this. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What does he mean there? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 to further illustrate this, loved ones. He says here that for you are not saved by grace, or sorry, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. But it doesn't end there, right? After we're saved by grace, Paul continues writing, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So despite being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, the result is to glorify God, to enjoy him, and to live our lives for him. Where the Roman Catholic Church misses that today, the Galatian believers were missing that point in Paul's day too. As a result, let's look at how Paul continues his logic here, his argument. He, he says here in Galatians 1.7, look what he says there. He writes, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So where Paul was saying that the Galatians were being deceived by a gospel different from that of the gospel of Christ, his point here is that there is no other gospel. In other words, this supposed gospel that the Galatians believe in is really no gospel at all. But why? Well, again, there's only one gospel that has the power to save and that's the gospel of Christ, right? To bring dead sinners to life in him. The only reason why the Galatians are turning to a different gospel is because they were deceived about it in the first place. And so look again at the second part of verse 7, where Paul says this, But there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here are the troublemakers, right, in Paul's letter. And although it's not clear in verse 7, Paul's you know, not mentioning them by name, 
When you, read the less, when you read the rest of the letter, it becomes very clear who Paul is referring to. And as I said earlier, these are Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. Again, never mentions them by name, but context makes that very clear. And so the two things here then that he mentions about them is that one, they're troubling the Galatian churches, right? That's the first thing. And second, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so what's interesting about these verbs is that when you look at troubling and wanting to distort, again, this is expressing a continuous action, right? They are continuous troublemakers for the Galatians. They are continually trying to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the reason why Paul had to send this letter to the Galatians, because this problem was not just a one-and-done deal, but something that was continually happening. And so Paul had to act by sending this letter, right? And so it's with this passage then that we see, well, Paul's concern is right here in our very text. These Jewish Christians are causing trouble to the Galatian believers and are trying to distort the gospel of Christ. In other words, these Jewish Christians, they're disturbing the Galatians' peace. And that's significant, right? Because the peace that these Galatian Christians once had in Christ, as he says in his greetings, right? These, Galatian, these Jewish Christians came and were trying to take it away from them. They were troubling them by distorting the gospel that was given them peace, right? And although it doesn't say here, we'll see later, that these Jewish Christians were trying to tell these Jewish Christians, you need to be circumcised, right? You need to keep these Jewish festivals. In other words, you Gentile Christians, you need to be Jewish to be saved, right? And again, such a dilemma is counterintuitive. Because Paul says in verse 3, as I said earlier, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say grace to you and peace from the law of Moses, He doesn't say grace to you and peace from your good works. He's saying, no, this grace and peace that you have, truly, it's only from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if a believer can only be saved by the grace of God alone, resulting in peace in Christ, to turn away to to a different gospel, really, at the end of the day, is foolishness. It truly demonstrates then that these Galatians themselves have been deceived by a different gospel. Therefore, when we read something like this right in Scripture, we should be saddened. That's horrible. But since we live in a fallen world, it should never shock us or surprise us because people fall away all the time from knowing one true gospel. And let me explain that, that someone who truly believes right in Christ as Lord and Savior, they can never lose their salvation, right? For it's God who keeps them to the very end. He who began a good work in us, he will complete it in the end, right? That's the work that God does. But... There are times when people may stumble and fall because they are deceived for a time or they need some extra help to get back on their feet, right? Or, more negatively, others may truly abandon the gospel. But it's not because they were Christians and then lost their salvation. When we look at other passages of Scripture, like in 1 John, he says that it's not that these people were Christians, but they were never saved in the first place. And I mention all that, loved ones, because the primary example of in our culture, of people going to a different gospel is really this trend of what's called, and this is going to be a mouthful, but deconstructionism. Deconstructionism. We see these trends on social media, um, and regardless of, of how it begins for a certain individual, um, some, somewhat different, you, you might see something like this. You might see a social media post on Instagram, might have hashtag exvangelical, right? Not evangelical, but exvangelical, and basically shares a story how they were a Christian, but certain things happened, and now they're not a Christian, right? Um, very sobering videos, but maybe to friends at work, people at school, all the way to celebrities that are doing it now, right? This is a real thing that's happening in our culture. And this idea of deconstructing one's faith, what does that mean? Well, it's really this process of rejecting Christianity in such a way that ultimately it leads to atheism, a rejection of God completely, or more commonly, it just leads to people rejecting certain beliefs in Christianity to kind of make a religion that best fits for themselves, right? But either way, when people do this, it's no gospel at all. Because despite people who may be generally struggling with maybe the goodness and truth of the Christian faith, nothing wrong with that. The solution is not to reject Christianity altogether, because many do do that, unfortunately. Instead, or I'm not going to get to the solution, I understand that even when I say that, right, that, well, there's John, there's hypocrites in Christ's church, right? And, I, and, and some people might say, well, I know confessing Christians. They're the most condemning people in the world. Others might say, well, when you look at the track history of the church, it's quite disturbing, right? And it's true. You know, sometimes people in the name of Christ, you know, have supported injustice, such as slavery here in America, in the antebellum South, 
more in ancient history, you got, you know, the church in the name of Christ destroying culture during the Crusades, and it leads people then to wonder, well, why should I follow Christianity? Especially when non-Christians at times are more pleasant people than maybe confessing Christians themselves. If this is supposedly the one true religion, why is this all happening? That's, what, that's some of the struggles that people in our culture are dealing with. And I think a good response, of course, we need to be patient, we need to pray and be loving. But I think the one response to really help people with this is that the solution to this, it's not a lesser form of Christianity or, you know, getting rid of Christianity altogether. Instead, the solution is a more deeper Christianity, a more robust faith in Jesus. And, and, when, we, and when I say that right, despite there being bad apples within the church right throughout history, we got to help people to untangle the difference between sin and what is biblical. Although people have done this in the name of Christ, that is not what Christ commands in his word, right? So helping people to, distinct, um, to untangle the two is very important because it allows people to realize that the bad track record of some people um, who are in the church don't allow that to be the definition of what Christianity truly is. Instead, look upon the definition or the standard of what Christianity is all about. What is that? It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's who we got to look to, what Christianity really is. And not only is he an example of who we try to live for as Christians, but really he's the entire point of the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, right? He is the God-man who lived the perfect life and died on the cross for guilty sinners like you and me. We have all fallen short of God's glory by rebelling against him. And since he is the just judge, the standard of right and wrong, when we sin against him, he must do what is right, and that is to judge evil once and for all. And part of that is judging us into eternal condemnation and hell. That's what we truly deserve, loved ones, and anyone for that matter. However, that's not the end of the story. That's the bad news, but the good news is, is that God shows his great love for us, right? That he sent his eternally begotten son, Jesus, to die in our place. God as a man dying in her place for guilty sinners, so that whoever repents of their sinning against the Creator God and believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Scriptures say, you will be saved. You will have new life in Christ. Because where all your sin debt is placed into Christ's account, and he, he pays it in full, right, on the cross for our sake. Because when I talk about forgiveness, it's not this idea that, oh, God forgives you, and all your, all your sins is kind of like left off the hook. No, your sin is still judged for But when it comes to the gospel, you are no longer paying for it yourself on the cross. Instead, when you believe in Jesus, he pays for your sins in full by bearing the full wrath of God, what you and me deserved himself on the cross. That's that's, that's good news. And not only that, but all his perfect works is placed into the believer's account so that when God the Father sees us, because of the perfect work of Christ, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are now children of of the living God. And so we hear this good news, right? And we can say, man, man, Christ is victorious. He is victorious over sin and death. And because of that, we can have victory and live with him forever. Therefore, loved ones, whether we know someone else who is maybe struggling with their faith in this manner in Christ, or maybe it's being deceived by a different gospel, we ought to help either way to help people understand what the gospel really teaches and what it truly means. Paul, will, Paul himself will later talk about this Actually, at the end of Galatians, he says, this is, he says this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. This is what he says here. He says, brothers and sisters, that's, that's, a, that's a warm affection, right? Although he's mad with them in the beginning, he still, still says, here are my brothers and sisters. He says, if someone is overtaking you in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. So what Paul is saying here then is that if we see anyone caught in sin, let us not abandon them to the wrongdoing. Just because you see a brother and sister fall into sin, don't be like, oh, that's not my problem, right? Am I my brother's or sister's keeper? No, instead, we got to restore them with a gentle spirit, right? In other words, out of our love for God and our brothers and sister, we got to do so in a humble manner and reach out and save those out of the fire. Because the moment we think that we're better, like, oh, I don't need to do that. It's like, oh, come on, Jimmy, you're struggling with that sin again. That, that, that becomes an opportunity that we're beginning to be filled with pride. And when we start to become filled with pride, Satan can use that for our downfall, right? Because Paul says here, it's like, you got to realize, do this humbly. Because you can fall into the exact same temptation as well. 
You got to take heed lest you fall as well. And that's true because if we're not careful, loved ones, even when we're helping others with their sin or if they're, with their struggling faith, not only can we be deceived by that same sin, but we might fall away from the gospel itself if we're not careful, loved ones. And so don't allow this to happen. Instead, guard yourselves by knowing and obeying what God says in his word. Submissively depend upon him, our creator God, by daily prayer. And live life as fellow believers, because even if one of us stumbles and falls, because we have the community of God's body, we have someone to pick us up and help us to keep running the race together. Because when we are initially, not just passively, but initially, actively doing these things, not only will it help us to bear each other's burdens as Christ first did for us on the cross, but we will protect each other from being deceived, especially from a different gospel. This is the heart of Paul's first reason why he writes this section of Galatians. The moment we are deceived by a different gospel, eternal consequences are soon to follow. So with all this in mind, this leads us to consider Paul's second reason why believing a false gospel has eternal consequences. And it's this, loved ones. The damnation of a false gospel. The damnation of a false gospel. So look at your Bibles, loved ones. In Galatians 1.8, this is what Paul writes. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. So now Paul is getting into a, into a series of what is called conditional statements, really addressing the heart of the issue. And if you're like, John, what is a conditional statement? Well, it's really this. It's a if-then statement. If this happens, then this will happen. If A happens, then B will happen. And not only that, but these are hypothetical situations. Not saying that these are true, but they are possible. If this happens, then it's possible that this will happen, right? That's how Paul is going to structure these next couple of verses. And so look again at verse 8, how Paul opens verse 8. Here's the first part of this, of this statement. He says, Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. I'm going to stop there, that, that first chunk of the conditional statement. Notice the two people that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about himself and some other people and an angel from heaven, right? And to further clarify what he means here, Paul has in mind himself and the other believers who were preaching the same gospel himself, right? It's not just Paul preaching the gospel of Christ, but there were other faithful brothers and sisters in the church preaching the same gospel as he was. So that's that's the first group Paul has in mind, himself and those other people. Second, he mentions an angel, right? Well, what's an angel? In the Greek, means the word messenger. But look what he says. It's an angel or a messenger from heaven, right? And so because it's telling us where this angel is located from, it's really telling us that this angel, it's the spiritual creatures, the good messengers created by God, right? And I say that in contrast to maybe demons who are fallen angels, evil messengers against God because they don't obey him. They obey their um, cruel slave master, Satan, right? But with that in mind, why does Paul even mention this in the first place? Right? Why is he mentioning himself and angels? What's Paul's point? Well, Paul's point is about the necessity of preaching the one and true gospel. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who the messenger is. What matters is, what's the content of the message itself? And the content that Paul has been arguing, and as he will continue in his letter, is that a person is not saved by being Jewish or by doing good works for that matter. Instead, a person is saved simply by believing in the perfect work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So even if a good angel right from heaven, which is unlikely, or even the apostle Paul himself, if they were to preach a gospel, a false gospel, then they will be accursed. And so Paul is not saying here, we've got to keep this in mind, Paul is not saying here that he is preaching a false gospel by no means. Look again closely at verse 8 where he says this. He says, contrary to what we have preached to you. And so what Paul, so when Paul's talking about preaching the gospel that he first preached to the Galatians, he is saying that the gospel I first preached to you was the one that I am talking about now. And not only that, but this gospel that I first preached to you, you accepted it. You received it. You received the gospel of Christ. And so Paul's point then here, he is saying that even if himself or a good angel was to preach a false gospel, we are to be accursed, right? Not that I am preaching a false gospel, but he's making a point. doesn't matter who I am. doesn't matter if you think I'm a, a lesser apostle or not. The fact of the matter is, what's the message of the gospel that I'm saying? And because it comes from God himself, what I'm saying is true. What he is saying is true. But that begs another question, though. 
What does Paul mean when he says accursed or a curse be on that person at the end of verse 8? Well, in the Greek, this word for curse or accursed, I'm going to share it with you. It's the word anathema. Anathema. It's the word for curse, accursed. It's not a cuss word, but this is how Paul is using this language here. And to understand what Paul is saying here, we got to go back to the Old Testament very briefly. And if you're thinking about, well, the word anathema, curse, if you're thinking about the book of Joshua, you'll be right, because that's where this language is mostly found in the book of Joshua. And it's really capturing this idea of what is known as the ban. The ban. And what that means is that when you look at the book of Joshua, that's the book where God is sending the children of Israel under the command of Joshua to finally inherit the land. The land promise that God first made to the father of Israel, right? Abraham himself. But not only that, but not only was Israel going to inherit the land, but this was going to be God's way of judging the Canaanites as well. Because the Canaanites, you know, very immoral culture, very sexually perverse. God was going to use this as an opportunity to fulfill his promise to Israel, but also to judge completely the Canaanite religion, the Canaanite um, culture and stuff like that. And so this idea of the ban then is something that is dedicated to God for complete destruction. And to kind of understand this within the text, I just want to share one passage in the book of Joshua. This is what it says in chapter 6, verses 17 to 18. It says, But the city and everything in it are set apart from the Lord for destruction. We see that language of the band there. It continues, Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with, with her in her house will live because she hid the messengers we sent. We keep, But keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. Again, more language of the band. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. So within this context, right, if you know the story, this is referring to the nation of Israel that God is commanding them to destroy the city of Jericho. This doesn't do it to every city, but to key cities throughout this conquest. And so God is commanding Israel then, set this entire city to the ban, right? Everyone in it, the city, the people, animals, everything, right? The only exception is Rahab and her family. Why? Well, because they believe in the God of Israel as the one and true Lord of the universe. And so despite this, this destruction, we see also God's mercy, right? God's glory and salvation through judgment. But if you read the story on, you, 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 you would know that you have an Israelite, Israelite man named Ahan. Um, he's a punk. He doesn't follow God's commands, and he's really a troublemaker for these Israelites, right? I like the Jewish Christians for the Galatian churches. And although this situation does take care of himself, the point that we need to understand here is that this idea of the ban, as it was used in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, it's really, at the end of the day, to set aside something for God's judgment. So let's go back to Paul then. When Paul's calling a hypothetical curse upon himself or an angel when they preach a false gospel, he is really saying at the end of the day, we ought to be damned to hell because that's God's eternal judgment, right? An anathema. This leads Paul to continue his point in his next verse because verse 9 follows this logically um, soon after. And so look at your Bibles, loved ones. In Galatians 1.9, Paul continues to write with all this in mind, as we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. An anathema. And so we look at this, right? The first passage is a little bit ambiguous. Because when Paul says, as we have said before, what does he mean by that? And it can mean one or two things. One, it could just mean what I said in verse 8, I'm now saying for the sake of emphasis, right? That's one way of taking this. Or some, will think, or some others will think that maybe this is referring to Paul's previous visit to the Galatians, right? Maybe in his first missionary journey. It's a little bit ambiguous, but whatever, whatever position you take, the point is, is that he's making a comparison here to exactly what he says in verse 8. If he himself, who are preaching a false gospel, the Apostle Paul himself, if he or an angel from God is cursed for preaching a false gospel, which they didn't, they're to be damned to hell if they do. Likewise, keeping that in mind, when Paul says in verse 9, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. And so the similarity of these two verses is that, as Paul says, cursed be him or an angel if they were to preach a false gospel, he's saying that if anyone preaches a false gospel contrary to the one that the Galatians first received from Paul, then they are to be damned to hell, an anathema. So Paul's point is that if anyone, including himself, is to preach a false gospel, you're damned to hell. You are damned to God's eternal judgment. And when we look at closely at this verse, this is really the central thrust of Paul's point here in Galatians 1, 6 to 10. 
What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. A false gospel, as we saw in the earlier point of our passage, a false gospel deceives someone from the true gospel of Christ, right? And as we're going to see later on, a false gospel can even lead someone to defect from their allegiance with Christ. However, it is both these realities of deception and defection that leads to the result of eternal damnation and hell forever. So loved ones, it is crucial then that we not only know the gospel, but that we are able to share it well with others. Because as I said earlier, the greatest problem in the world is lostness. And so it's a matter of spiritual life and death when it comes to the gospel. If we get the gospel wrong, we run the risk of leading someone astray from the truth of the gospel along with ourselves. As a result, keeping this in mind, we've got to contend for the gospel. We've got to fight, we've got to share, we've got to live out the gospel. Jude has something very interesting to say about this in his small little letter. He says this in Jude 3, writing, Contend for the gospel. Contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints once and for all. But how do we do that exactly, right? How do we contend for the faith? How do we live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Paul gives, um, Jude gives us an answer later at the end of his letter in verses 20 to 21. This is what he says as a direct application of how to contend for the faith. He says, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so how do we contend for the gospel, loved ones? By keeping yourselves in God's love, by loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, right? And one of the greatest ways we love our neighbor is by telling them of their greatest need by sharing the gospel with them, right? And how do we grow into this, right? How do we grow to be more faithful followers of Jesus, sharing the gospel as we live life? Well, first, build yourselves up in, the, in your most holy faith. Build yourselves up in the word, right? Pray in the Holy Spirit, depend upon God daily for his help and guidance. And lastly, doing all these things as we wait for the coming return of Jesus. Because Jesus is coming back soon, right? For the church, you know, he's going to be our, our savior, um, our, our Lord. And for the unbeliever, still going to come back for you as well, but he won't be your savior. He will be your judge at that point. So it's important that we make, take the initiative, loved ones, of contending for the faith, abiding in God's love, and sharing the gospel with anyone that we can, that we can share it with, right? Because when we do that, loved ones, we're showing mercy to those who are perishing. Whether it's a believer who's being deceived by sin or an unbeliever still in darkness, right? We still ought to love them nonetheless by sharing the gospel with them. Because as God first shows his love to us through his son, we ought to do the same for others by sharing his son too. Because it's only by believing in Jesus as the way, as the truth, and the life, by faith alone that saves. Where believing in a false gospel results to eternal damnation due to deception. We're going to see that with all this in mind, Paul's going to share one more thing. He's going to share a final reason why believing a false gospel has eternal consequences. And it's this, loved ones. The defection of a false gospel. The defection of a false gospel. So look at your Bible, loved ones. In Galatians 1.10, this is what Paul writes here. He says, For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we see here that Paul closes this section of his letter with a couple questions. He asks whether he's trying to persuade people or is he trying to persuade God? In other words, is he just solely a man pleaser or is he only concerned about God's glory, right? And all those such comments, such questions, it might be like, eh, how does this fit with what Paul has been saying earlier? You've got to remember, what's one, of, what's one of the other reasons why Paul writes his letter to the Galatians? Well, these Jewish Christians, they were diminishing Paul's authority as an apostle. He's inferior to the other apostles like James, John, and Peter, right? And, and not only that, but for these people to, for Paul to at least mention that he is not a people pleaser indicates really the nature of these Jewish Christians' criticism against him. What do I mean by that? Well, since Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, that's Christ's commission to him, as it says in Acts 9, his main concern is to tell them not how to be Jewish, but how to be saved, right? Because you're not saved by being Jewish or based on your ethnicity. In other words, you were saved by your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it, right? That's what Paul's concerned about. However, 
These Jewish Christians were saying that, well, no, we think you need to be Jewish to be saved, right? And the fact that Paul is not telling these Gentile Christians in Galatia that they're not becoming Jewish, Paul sold out, right? He's not telling them what they need to hear, and so he's trying to please the Gentile Christians by telling them what they want to hear, so he doesn't offend them with the gospel. And Paul's, and Paul's response is like, that's nonsense. That's nonsense, because that's not how we're saved. We're saved by faith in Jesus. And I think something to keep in mind it's really important to understand about Paul is that we have to understand his standard of living, his principle of how he did ministry um, in the early church. What do I mean by that? Well, put simply, as a Jew himself, he was a Jew to save Jews. But not only that, but when he was speaking to Gentiles, non-Jews, he was a Gentile to them to save Gentiles. He kind of says this in a section of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. It's kind of a big chunk, but I think it's very helpful to kind of illustrate what Paul's, what Paul's getting at here. He says here that to the Jews I became like a Jew to win Jews to those under the law like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law to win those under the law. So he's talking about Jews there, right? In contrast to Gentiles, to those who are without the law like one without the law, Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak I became weak, in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may, by every possible means, to save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. The beautiful passage, because what we're seeing here is that Paul, when he speaks to Jews and Gentiles, he, in other words, is contextualizing the gospel. What does that mean? Something that missionaries do all the time, that when they present the gospel, they don't want to bring the cultural baggage that maybe a gospel might be here or proclaimed or understood here in America, right? Instead, here's the gospel, Christ crucified, and that's alone. Let me give another illustration to kind of help understand that. Think of the gospel, or think of a a sheath of corn, right? Got the little kernels within the corn, and you got a husk, right? The gospel itself is the little kernel Whereas culture is the, is the husk surrounding it, right? And so what Paul does then is that when he's preaching to the Jews or to the Gentiles or whoever, right, he's peeling away the culture. He's peeling it all away so that when he's telling the gospel to Gentiles or to Jews, it's done in such a way that the Gentiles understand the gospel in a way that makes sense to them and their culture. And when Paul's doing it to the Jews, he's doing the exact same thing. And so what Paul doing, is doing here then is that when he presents this gospel kernel itself, Cultures were moved away so that Jew and Gentile can understand the gospel without any other cultural baggage that, that acts really as a, as a wall, as, as a prohibit, uh, it prohibits someone from understanding the gospel. And so I mention that because these are questions that Paul then answers himself at the very last part of verse 10. And so look at your Bibles, loved ones, at the last sentence of verse 10. Paul writes here, in line of these questions, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so we see here another conditional statement, if, then, and it's asked in such a way in the Greek that it's answered negatively. In other words, Paul's like, I am not pleasing people. I am only pleasing God, right? But he's again making a point if he was. And so Paul is not, again, trying to please or persuade people. If anything, he was pleasing God by persuading people with the gospel of Christ. Because if he is solely trying to please people, he is not a true servant of Christ, and this idea of a servant of Christ, it's really to be a slave of Christ, a bond servant to him. And I know that word slavery is a buzzword, has negative connotations. The concept here of being a slave of Christ, it's a really good thing, loved ones. Since Christ is the good master, he is the good Lord, being obligated to serve him as Christians, that's a great honor. Because to serve the God of the universe as his people is a high privilege, especially when you consider we didn't deserve nothing but hell, right? But not only that, but everyone is a slave to something at least, right? Because some people are like, I don't want to be a slave to Christ, you know, like Paul. But, all right, you're still a slave to something. And if it's not Christ, then it's sin. This is what Jesus says in John 8, 34, saying that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So as a result, if Paul then here is trying to please people, he doesn't fear God. If he fears man instead, or he fears man instead, right? And if he fears man more than God, then he has made the approval of man an idol over God's approval. However, Paul again answers in a negative sense. He does, he does fear God. I don't fear man. He fears God alone. 
He is not changing his message for the sake of not offending anyone. He doesn't care about that. He's just concerned about preaching what the gospel of Christ is itself. And the fact that he is willing to put a curse on himself as a point underscores that he is a true apostle of God. He is a true messenger of God preaching the one true gospel of Jesus. So keeping Paul's example in mind here, right? Boldness, right? He's just concerned about what this has to say about the Bible, about the gospel. Allow his example of us loved ones to not try to please others when it comes more than God. Because no matter what maybe people might say or do, whether we're sharing the gospel or trying to be a witness at work, the only opinion that matters at the end of the day is God's, right? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, that kind of emphasizes, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Man, right? Rather, Jesus says, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Talking about God. And even when I read that, I know it's still tempting to give into that inner circle of man at times, right? It just happens. But when we do give into that, right, it's something that will never satisfy. It's a continual spiral going downhill. And not only that, but it will lead to one to defect from God himself, to rebel against him, swearing their allegiance to people's opinions rather than God himself. So keeping all this in mind, loved ones, truly then, believing a false gospel has eternal consequences. Not only does it lead to deception and um, defection, but it ultimately damnation and hell forever. Paul will continue in his letter defending his apostolic authority by sharing his story how he became an apostle. He does that later in the next couple chapters. But for us in the meantime, loved ones, it's vital for us to realize the high cost of being, of, or really to realize the high cost of believing a false gospel. Not only do we live in a culture, a secular culture, where people believe in whatever works for them. Hey, if my heart tells me so, I'm going to follow my emotions, right? Your truth is your truth, and so you do you, right? That's, that's the mantra in our culture. Yet, even when people think that way, we have the good news. We have the good news that has to save power from their sin. To, that, as, as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Because there is no other gospel that addresses humanity's greatest problem of lostness. It's only through the gospel of Christ that a person can be forgiven of their sins and have everlasting life of the God who made us. Therefore, loved ones, stay faithful. Stay faithful by obeying and preaching the good news of Jesus to those around you. Whether it's lost people, we all know lost people, right? Maybe family members, maybe in our workplaces, in our community. Share with them the only gospel that can save them. And it, and it might be difficult at times, right? Sometimes we've got to listen to their story, patiently waiting for a good opportunity to share them the, the true story of God's word, how he has saved us from our sins in Jesus. Other times, you know, it, it requires us to not treat people as projects, but as people, building those friendships, actually caring for them, serving them, living amongst them to one day share the gospel with them. We might be rejected by them at the end of the day, where it's like, man, what's the point, John? But think about this. Since God so loved us, by eternally sending his begotten son to die for us on the cross, as it says in the Bible, we must do the same by sharing the good news with others. Because if not, then what other gospel is there that can save a person from the curse of sin? Because except, from the, because except from the perfect work of the cross of Christ, there's no other name. There's no other gospel that can save someone from spiritual death in sin and bring them to eternal life in Christ. And that's good news, loved ones. School before our Lord one more time in prayer.